This morning, we continue our journey through every chapter of the book of Luke, one of the four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament. This morning, we arrive at chapter 20. You may want to follow along in the Bible in the pew rack. I will be reading Luke 20, 20 through 26. Now, if you've been reading Luke's gospel along with the rest of the congregation, you know that this week we're jumping the gun a bit on Lent. Jesus made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem at the end of chapter 19 and has just driven the corrupt money changers from the temple. Threatened by Jesus' confidence, a group of corrupt religious authorities, priests, scribes, and elders are plotting to bring Jesus down. Luke picks up the action at verse 20. Listen for God's word. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and do not, do, and do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and back to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he said, with what he said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. So, turns out that there may have been a divine plan at work in our having to postpone um, Boy Scout and Cub Scout Sunday from two weeks ago because the fact that we postponed it until this week made it possible for me to notice a connection between this story that Tegan just read for us and some words that these Cub Scouts and these Boy Scouts say every time they gather. Now, this connection probably occurred to me because these particular words happen to be hardwired into me as well because for six years or so, I said them every Tuesday night with my fellow scouts when we gathered in Troop 736 in suburban Denver. And I am talking about the Boy Scout Oath. You can see the words there behind me. And uh, I thought about, like, picking one of these scouts or cubs and making them come up here and say it from memory. I thought about doing that for Daniel Bonin. He was up here. But instead, I decided that all of us scouts, young and old, all of us Boy Scouts, I know the Girl Scouts have an oath too, but the Boy Scout oath, if you know it, say it along with me. On my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country, to obey the scout law, to help other people at all times, to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight. And odds are you have already seen the connection that I'm talking about because it's right there in the beginning in the second line and it is the words in which scouts promise to do their best, to do their duty to God and my country. Do my best to do my duty to God and my country. And I can tell you that many scouts do do their best to scout out and to try and determine 
the boundary line between these two sorts of duties, the duty to God and the duty to country. These two loyalties that for each one of us compete for our attention. In fact, you might not know this, but scouts who choose to do so can actually do an extra deep dive on the topic, earning an extra badge that's called actually God and Country has a, a different medal for each denomination or religious tradition because to get your God and country, a scout has to work with their own pastor or rabbi or imam and work through a booklet. And each of these religious traditions has worked with scouts to create this, this booklet and this experience, um, including our own Presbyterian denomination. And over the years, Kurt and I have both coached many scouts through this God and country experience. And inevitably, these scouts discover something, that untangling your duty to God and your duty to country is not always crystal clear. I suspect you've discovered this. For instance, as Nathan alluded to, in seven weeks, all of us, if we're obeying the law, are going to be paying our federal income tax. And what that means is you will be giving some of your hard-earned money to some things that fit easily with your sense of what God might want in the world, but you'll also be giving your money to some things that do not fit your sense of what God might want in the world. Or another example, it seems like every few days another person throws their hat in the ring as a candidate for the 2020 presidential election. What that means for you as a follower of Jesus, you're going to have to hold their vision of what a flourishing world looks like up against the vision of a flourishing world that you have discovered in Scripture. I would say that an even more subtle, even more difficult challenge happens every time you go to the mall. A moment in which you are forced to navigate between this definition of the, of the good life that our country and our culture gives us, our, our nation's consumer culture sets out before us, and that vision of justice and stewardship and sharing that Jesus speaks of. Turns out that figuring out what it means to do our best to do our duty to God and our country is a bit trickier than we expected. And all of us, whether or not we say the scout oath week in and week out, we long for some kind of clear and uncomplicated and surefire way that we can resolve that tension and that confusion between these two competing loyalties. Well, in first century Roman-occupied Judea, which is the setting of the story that Tegan just read, among the various Jewish groups with whom Jesus was interacting, there were two groups that were fairly convinced that they had resolved that tension entirely, that tension between loyalty to God and loyalty to those who ruled the province. Maybe more accurately, there were two groups that would have responded what is there to resolve? On one side, there was a group called the Zealots. Now, some New Testament scholars believe that Judas, the, the disciple Judas, was a part of this group. And the Zealots were so thoroughly committed to obeying God that they saw any compromise whatsoever with the Roman occupiers as blasphemy. 
as infidelity. So for the zealots, there was only one faithful option for a pious Jew, total resistance. And so through propaganda and through sabotage and even through assassination of Roman officials, by the way, the word Iscariot, the nickname after Judas, um, seems to mean knife wielder. Knife wielder, which is why they think he might be a zealot. So through all these things, zealots did all they could to undermine and resist the current ruling authorities. On the other side, there was a group called the Herodians. And as their name suggests, they were Jews who were just fine with Herod. Herod was the local king that the Roman occupiers had installed, some would call him a puppet, and installed in Judea. But to the Herodians, they said, what's the problem with Herod? Herod keeps us safe. Herod lets us worship as Jews in the temple as we want to. Herod's got all of Rome's wealth and grandeur behind him. Herod builds beautiful buildings. To the Herodians, the way that you showed your loyalty to God was precisely by loyally serving your country and its emperor. So, for the Zealots and for the Herodians, while they came to opposite conclusions, figuring out your duty to God and your duty to country was simple. There was no tension. There were other groups, however, who knew better. And in Luke chapter 20, three of these groups, the chief priests, the Torah teachers, and the elders, have apparently gotten together to take down this cocky upstart named Jesus. All three of these groups had a stake in their, their roles, and that stake was threatened. They were alarmed by Jesus' growing popularity. And as Luke tells us, they went so far as to plant spies among the crowds. And they went so far as to collude and to conspire to try and trip Jesus up to say something, to say anything that would derail his rock star status among the people of Judea. And you've kind of got to admire their ingenuity. Because unlike the Zealots or the Herodians, they knew that the distinction between loyalty to God on the one hand and loyalty to government on the other was not all that clear. They knew that there was contested space between these two. They knew that there was an overlap. And they figured out that the perfect way to trap Jesus was to force him to either tick off the crowds or tick off the Romans... And by cornering him into saying something definitive about some issue, some topic that sat right in the middle of that overlap. And then it dawned on them, of course, the tribute tax. Tribute, you see, did not originally mean what we usually mean by it. When we say tribute, we mean a gesture of admiration, a gesture of homage. Tribute... The original meaning is part of the spoils of war. Tribute is the annually recurring transfer of wealth that a conqueror would impose on the nation that they conquer. And so the specific tax that these spies bring up with Jesus in this episode is the annual tax through which each resident of Judea would pay their part of conquered Judea's 
annual tribute to conqueror Rome. Now, for each resident, this tax really wasn't all that onerous. It was one denarius, and a denarius is a day's wage for a laborer, and they only had to pay that once a year. So it wasn't big, but symbolically, this tax was galling. It was humiliating. It was infuriating. It was a constant reminder of their conquered status, that God's chosen people had come to this, reduced to serving a pagan empire and its pagan emperor. And so, baiting the trap with their cloying, phony deference, and Tegan, I love how you did that, that kind of hammed it up a little bit, I really like that, when they said, teacher, you teach what is right. <laughs> and then they pose their question with all the affected innocence that they can muster. Teacher, tell us, please, is it right to pay the tribute tax to Caesar or not? And then they waited with delicious anticipation for Jesus to hang himself. Either he would have to ingratiate himself to the Romans and their hated tribute, and all of that popularity and all of the masses would just evaporate instantly, or he'd have to say something that was actually and legally seditious. And then, as in now, governments don't look all that kindly on tax revolts. And Jesus would find himself in a musty, stone-cold cell in Pilate's dungeon. Which is why I would have loved to have seen their faces as Jesus utters this single sentence of two simple phrases. Well, give to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God? What is God's? It's a response that is, of course, brilliant. It's brilliant on the one hand, because in this single sentence, Jesus wiggles out of their elaborate trap. And Luke tells us in the final verses of this episode that the spies are left speechless. They are astonished. This is a mic drop, as they say. But if you're like me, and listening or reading this passage... You hear this single sentence that Jesus says, and you figure, hmm, this sounds brilliant for another reason. Because here, in one sentence, Jesus has finally provided that clarity that we've all been seeking. Clarity on how to navigate these two loyalties in our lives. Here is the formula. This is what we ask for. Here is the tidy categories that we all wanted there's God's stuff over here, and there's Caesar's stuff over here. Thank you, Jesus. And indeed, that is exactly how this phrase in this passage is regularly explained, and I would say often preached. Here, in this passage, a pastor might say, Jesus, 17 centuries before James Madison, proclaims the concept of separation of church and state. Jesus says it right here. The church should stay in its lane. The church should stay out of politics for sure. Faith, faith 
such a preacher might go on to say is spiritual. It is internal. It belongs in the private sphere. And that means faith has nothing to say. It has no claim over how you live your life in public. It has no claim over who you vote for, over what you buy, over how you spend your time. All that belongs to Caesar. At least, that's what you initially think you hear Jesus saying. But folks, this is the king of reversals. And as we have discovered again and again, as we've journeyed through Luke, you are sure you know what Jesus is about to say, or sure you know what Jesus just said, and then you start thinking about it. And the words begin to turn 180 degrees. Now, we probably should have suspected this was going to happen because much as we would like to project onto this passage our cherished idea of the separation of church and state, how these two exist in hermetically sealed spheres, I'm sorry to tell you that whole way of thinking is actually an invention of Enlightenment Europe. The separation of church and state would have made no sense at all, zero sense to Luke or to his first readers. But even within this episode that Luke writes for us, there are elements, there are solvents in a way that begin to bubble and dissolve and deconstruct what you thought you heard Jesus just say. And just like his parables so often do, they force you into active thought and they force you into seeing things in a new way. New ways of seeing the world become possible. So let me back up a little bit in this story. Let me focus in on that coin that Jesus asks one of these spies to fish out of his pocket there in the temple and show him. It's called a denarius. What's important is that a denarius is not a Judean coin. The Judean coins are called shekels. A denarius is a Roman coin. It's minted by the Romans all over the empire. And the reason Jesus asked for this, the reason this uh, spy shows it to him, is because everyone there that day knows that you can only pay your annual Roman tribute tax with a Roman coin. Specifically, at the time, a silver denarius like the one you see on the screen. And did you notice that Jesus not only says, show me a denarius, he asks specifically whose image and whose inscription is on it. Um, Caesar's, they hesitantly croak out, which is true. Specifically, at that point, it is the emperor Tiberius. What they don't say, though, is that there are actually two images of Tiberius on that coin in their pocket. On the front, on the left here, is Tiberius's face in profile, but on the other side, it's Tiberius in the pose and with the symbols of a Roman god. And for a pious Jew, it actually gets worse because the Latin inscription around Tiberius' head reads this. Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, himself divine. Now remember, this whole scene from Luke's Gospel is taking place in the halls of the Jerusalem, Jerusalem temple. And by fishing this coin out of their pockets and showing it to Jesus, 
these religious authorities are admitting that right there in the temple precincts, they are actively breaking two of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no graven images. There is a pagan image of a god on this coin. And you shall have no other gods before me. There's the claim that Caesar is God. They are carrying their own hypocrisy, their own compromise right there in their pockets. At the same time, though, in asking about the image on the coin, Jesus is making an even more subtle and even more magnificent claim because the Ten Commandments are not the only, or I would say even the most important place in the Hebrew Scriptures where God mentions an image. Way back in the first chapter, in the first chapter of Genesis is that awesome and mysterious phrase that God has made every single human being in his image. We bear the image of God. And when you remember this, you suddenly get this glorious joke that Jesus is making here. That Caesar can stamp anything he wants on his stupid coin. God has already stamped his image on the human soul, and that includes Caesar's soul. And it's then that what you at first thought was Jesus' tidy, simple aphorism about how to clearly separate these two distinct categories of human experience about what is God and what is Caesar's, suddenly this aphorism begins to deconstruct before your very eyes. And so while at one level Jesus gives an answer clever enough to foil the spies, at another he makes an astonishingly stunning claim for the sovereignty of God so that the Venn diagram that we're actually looking at looks like this on the screen. That if there is, perchance, a set of things that belong to Caesar, they only belong to Caesar in a provisional and derivative way, precisely because the creator of the cosmos allows it. That always and forever, everything and everyone belongs only to God. As I say, this is a brilliant answer. But what you'll notice is it is not simple. We want an easy formula. We want tidy categories. We want some sphere in which the sovereignty of God has no claim. Well, that is not the God that we serve, and that is not the world that he created. The God that we serve did not stay off in some pure heaven, avoiding the complications and the compromises of the world. The God we serve stepped right into the middle of the mess right into the middle of the compromises in the person of Jesus Christ. And the reason is because God so loved the world. And that means God cares deeply about the specific nations and the specific cultures and the specific political parties and the specific rulers of the world because he longs for them to flourish. And yet, it is not just any flourishing. And it is not the human definition of flourishing. It is his intended flourishing as the world's creator. What that means is that instead of a tidy formula, Jesus gives us an invitation to live with him in that same tension. 
acknowledging that just like those spies, every one of us lives with a denarius in our pocket. Because we, too, are forced every day to negotiate and to compromise with the powers of this world. But what Jesus invites us to do is to wake up fresh every morning and ask him to show us anew what faithfulness and loyalty look like today. And you know what's interesting? I don't think it looks exactly the same for any of us. It doesn't look the same for you as it does for me. In fact, the best thing that I read on this passage is by Lutheran preaching professor David Loos. And Loos claims that in this instruction about God and Caesar, Jesus does not intend to provide a one-size-fits-all answer to every loyalty question before it arises. Instead, Jesus provides us a puzzle. And it's a puzzle that forces us every day of our lives to seek Jesus' guidance and Jesus' wisdom firsthand, to keep asking his help in real time, and at the same time, it forces us to continually invite each other into our life decisions. And so Loos claims that the most fitting phrase for us to use in response to this passage is one that we use with each other. It's the phrase, I don't know, what do you think? <laughs> it is a spiritual practice of sorts. Intended to keep us always in that sacred tension between our earthly duties and God's sovereignty. Do we pay taxes? I don't know. What do you think? Do we serve in the military? I don't know. What do you think? Do we take a knee during the national anthem? I don't know. What do you think? Do we vote for this party or that party? I don't know. What do you think? So that is exactly what we're going to do right now. You probably noticed that there are four questions in the bulletin under the order of worship. As we consider the claim that this command of Jesus might have on us, I'm going to give you a chance to say to one another, I don't know, what do you think? <laughs> All right, so to do this, we're going to divide into threes. And I would love it if you turn around, somebody you didn't drive here with, get into threes. And this is going to go pretty quick. And I want to set down a ground rule. What I'm setting up right now is not a debate. I want to maintain the spirit of that question. I don't know, what do you think? And the spirit of that question is curiosity and it's mutual listening. So that's what this is about. And because of that, it's going to go pretty quickly. There'll pretty much just be time for you to say something about the question. If you choose to, if you don't want to, pass, it's no problem. Six minutes total, and I'll interrupt us with the prayers of the people. During that six minutes, Kate is going to be changing the questions on the screen regularly. That might keep you moving. But if you get stuck on the first one, that's fine too. You might just want to go through with your own pace using the bulletin. The bulletin has the same four questions as will be on the screen. Okay, here we go. Six minutes. I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> so, obviously, we have not resolved any of these questions, and I think that's the point. I think we are supposed to live in this tension of faithfulness to a God who owns every square inch of the cosmos 
And the reality that God puts us in situations and in cultures and in countries where we need to negotiate and navigate what that means. The wonderful thing is that we get to do this together. Will you pray with me?